0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. We begin today talking about climate change. The issue, like so many this campaign season, was often crowded out by the pandemic. But we know that for many voters, especially younger voters, environmental justice and climate policy are a top priority. President-elect Joe Biden ran on an ambitious climate agenda, but his ability to deliver on it is going to be challenging. First, well, there's still a pandemic raging, which will take up most of the administration's bandwidth. Then there's the fact that, at best, he'll have only the narrowest Democratic majority in the Senate. And then there's division within his own party about how aggressive the White House should be on this issue.
0: When I think about my district, where Black children are 10 times as likely to go to the ER for asthma than white children, we got to do something about it. So we're calling on the Biden administration right now
2: to save lives. Save lives. There's no other alternative. We need bold leadership, and we're asking you because we voted for you.
1: That's incoming freshman Congresswoman Cory Bush from St. Louis speaking this week in front of the DNC building in Washington. In other words, the big, sweeping, structural change type legislating to reverse course on climate is a tall order. And it's one made bigger by what his predecessor leaves
3: behind. The Trump administration rolled back or weakened over 100 environmental rules and policies.
1: That's Coral Davenport, an energy and environmental policy reporter for the New York Times. Those rollbacks Coral just mentioned were done by executive order, so Biden can use the same mechanism to reverse them. In fact, the majority of them have to do with traditional air and water pollutants, and they weren't even in effect until the last two years, which according to Coral Davenport means the lasting impact to our air and water won't be that much. But she says climate is different.
3: Change is caused by putting greenhouse gases into the Earth's atmosphere and they stay there. It's cumulative. It's kind of like a garbage dump. It just, you just keep adding to it. And the Trump rollbacks, both of the domestic climate change regulations and the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, all came at a moment in the history of global warming where we crossed a threshold, the point at which you kind of hit a point point of no return with greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is when you, you cross into 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That is sort of the point past which the worst impacts of a lot of the worst effects impacts, impacts of climate change are baked in. Um, you can't really go back. And, the planet first crossed into that in 2016, the year that Trump was elected. Um, that might have been a moment where, sort of, if every single major economy was working together to slam on the brakes, you might at least start at the beginning of a U-turn. Instead, the U.S. pulled back, undid its own regulations, and this year the planet hit 417 parts per million um, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we are instead of instead of beginning a turnaround, the planet is speeding ahead. Um, it's become the last four years have made it much, much, much harder to stop or slow that trajectory. And so that is why, even if all these rules get put back, it'll take a couple of years to put them back. Um, even if the U S rejoins the Paris agreement, it's lost a lot of credibility. It will take time to, to rebuild those rules and rebuild that credibility. And in the meantime, the greenhouse gases just keep accumulating.
1: President-elect Biden has been vocal about rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, but as Coral Davenport points out, rebuilding credibility internationally could be difficult, especially given the history.
3: Back in the 90s, Vice President Al Gore went to the rest of the world and said, we're going to do the Kyoto Protocol, which was the world's first big international agreement on climate change. The U.S. is going to be a leader. We're going to be a big part of this. Trust us. And then the, the next president, George W. Bush, said, no, sorry, we're not. And the U.S., never formally joined Kyoto. And then once again, um, in the Obama administration, you know, and, and the U.S. the U.S. really kind of became this, you know, black sheep in, in the climate world, international climate world for years and years and years. And then Ob- Obama, uh, President Obama helped forge the Paris Agreement and went kind of around the world saying, look, the U.S. is back, we have our domestic policies, we have these regulations, we wanna do this. Kyoto is not gonna happen again, trust us. And so, a lot of other economies took a leap of faith and and joined in. And what happened? Boom. It happened again. So I think what's going to happen is that, you know, when I talk to um, people in the international climate space around the world, they say, look, we are overjoyed um, at seeing President Elect Biden say he's going to come back to this space and move forward with the U.S. and rejoin Paris. You know, he there is so much goodwill around the Biden administration. And yet there is a tremendous distrust of what could happen in the future. And that really weakens the U.S. hand in negotiations. Well,
1: let's talk then about how this works domestically. And you have on the campaign trail, then candidate Biden pledging his administration would ensure the U.S. achieves 100 percent clean energy, reaches net zero emissions no later than 2050. But I remember very clearly back in 2009, Democrats had not just the White House, but they had the House, big margins in the House, big margins in the Senate, tried to pass a cap and trade climate bill, which had an 83% cut, right? Not 100%, but 83% by 2050. It barely passed with a lot of Democrats voting no and never got anywhere in a Democratic Senate. So, Given where we are now with a very narrow Democratic majority in the House, it's unclear where the Senate's going to be, but very narrow either way. I mean, how realistic is anything legislatively for a Biden administration on something as profound as this?
3: Joe Biden, to to his credit, absolutely was the first presidential nominee to make climate change a central issue. Um, and his climate campaign, his climate proposals were absolutely the most aggressive and ambitious climate proposals of of any presidential nominee, $2 trillion, like you said, net zero, the country's going to get, eliminate all emissions in 30 years. What, I mean, that's, that's, that's what scientists say we need, but that's tremendous. That's far more ambitious than what was proposed by Obama. Um, Joe Biden knows that, that that's not going to happen. Um, The Senate, no matter, you know, even if it gets a 51 vote, you know, majority is not going to pass $2 trillion in green spending. It is all but impossible to imagine that there will be any kind of legislation that will mandate major emissions cuts. And so, you know, he's going to turn back to the same tools that President Obama used. And in, in some cases, they're just going to go back and put some of those regulations back in place. Um, In some cases, there's a pretty clear legal path to do that. One of the the biggest regulation that the Obama administration did was was, um, increasing fuel economy for vehicles, which significantly lowers auto tailpipe emissions of greenhouse gases. I think that they'll be able to put that back in a fairly straightforward way and have that probably stand up pretty well legally. Some of the other rules, I don't even think they'll take a stab at or they will try, to, they'll they'll have to put back in a much more modest way. Um, and this is because we have a, a more conservative Supreme Court than Obama did. And so I think that they will be looking at that and saying, this is a Supreme Court that is not going to look favorably on aggressive rules that give federal agencies a lot of authority to regulate huge swaths of the economy. And so we're going to have to tread more cautiously so they can put these rules in place. In some cases, they may have to be more modest in order to stand up legally. And as we've just seen, you know, if you're acting, if you're doing regulation, it can still get undone in the future.
1: Talk about uh, the other issue here, it seems to me, is it's not just trying to bring Republicans on board, but Biden's got to keep Democrats happy, too. And we've already started to see some rifts within the Democratic coalition over some of the folks that Biden is bringing on board in his new administration, specifically bringing in uh, Congressman Cedric Richmond from New Orleans, um, who many in the progressive movement, especially uh, those from the Sunrise movement, argue is sort of, you know, part of the corporate oil and gas cabal. He takes a lot of money from these interest groups, they say, and This is exactly the wrong kind of person to be in the White House. And that if if Biden is serious about climate, he's he's got to bring people in who are, you know, not from that world. How serious of a challenge do you think that Biden is going to have in keeping both sides of the Democratic Party happy? The sort of new suburban moderate wing of the party who may want a more go slow approach Versus progressive, especially younger progressive voters who say climate change is the existential issue of our time. And unless you're doing big structural change, you're not doing enough.
3: That rift is is very real. And of course, as you know, I mean I mean that, that is reflective of the broader rift between the party. It not, you know, not just on this issue, but we're seeing that between the, the centrists and the progressives. And the progressives feel very empowered right now, particularly on climate change. You know, that group, the sunrise movement, really showed their political power in this in this political season. They went out and knocked doors and, and helped get. Um, Ed Markey reelected in Massachusetts, uh, which was kind of, which was a big surprise. Um, and they sort of showed, look, we've got that power. And they pushed, they publicly pushed Biden, um, candidate Biden to, you know, really beef up in his climate plan and make it more ambitious, which he did as a result of that pressure. I mean, he added, he, he increased the amount of money he was going to spend. He made his plans more ambitious. And in return, I think a lot of those progressives felt like they held their nose a little bit, but they they went out for him. And so, I mean, you know, you got to dance with them, what bring you? They're saying, all right, we helped get you here. And you made this a central campaign issue. We, this is what we demand. And this is already causing headaches. I talked to, um, you know, an operative who's sort of between Biden transition world and, and the Hill who said, honestly, we think that. The biggest problem, the biggest challenge in getting in getting anything through, is not going to be Republicans, and it's going to be the progressive left because they have these demands. They feel very empowered and emboldened. You know, I think that they sort of it's, it sort of feels like they would be prepared to walk or turn against this administration if they tried to make some kind of centrist deal. Um, you know, on on modest legislation that wouldn't go as far as they would want, and then and then that could blow up you know, that could blow things up. So I think there is a sense of we want these people. They helped bring us here. We have to play, you know, but, you know, we, we have to horse trade and manage expectations. And that's not really how this world operates. And I, I think that there's definitely, there is already a lot of tension there and we could see it blow up. I, I don't know. I mean, I, and, and again, that's a, that's a larger dynamic.
1: Well, Coral Davenport, thank you so much for talking with us, for all the work you do at The New York Times, and you're going to be really busy these next few months. That much is for sure.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Amy.
1: Coral Davenport is an energy and environmental policy reporter for The New York Times. From the moment President Donald Trump took office, he took aim at Obama-era policies that sought to reduce the threat of climate change. Over the last four years, the Trump administration has attempted to roll back more than 100 environmental rules, including withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, reducing protections for wetlands, and weakening the Clean Air Act. President-elect Biden has his work cut out for him when it comes to making good on his campaign promise to fight climate change. Jodie Freeman is a law professor at Harvard University and former counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House. I spoke with her this week about how the Biden administration might proceed with pursuing climate change policy in a hyperpolarized political
4: landscape. The challenge will be how to get climate change as a priority attached to other things that have to happen. So if a big bill for economic recovery is moving in the Congress how do you inject climate priorities into it? You know, green infrastructure spending, investments in R&D and clean technologies, renewables, support for batteries and energy storage, that kind of thing. You would expect to see the administration attach to a legislative package for the economic recovery plan. The other thing I would advise is just to, you know, get the executive branch up and moving, which I expect they will do, meaning, you know, get the agencies going to, Put back in place all of the regulations that the Trump administration unraveled on climate change and environmental protection. So, that the administration can do quite quickly. You know, they can get the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Interior and the Department of Energy going and other agencies that have to basically put regulations back in place. And that the president can do without the Congress. So, it's really those two pieces um, managing the executive branch, getting off to a running start and putting climate and energy policy into whatever else can be moved through the Congress.
1: So I'm wondering, you know, is the, the the prospect of ever getting something that is a big, far-reaching piece of legislation through Congress, and it's gonna have to be in a bipartisan way, even possible, despite the fact that, you know, more Americans than ever now do believe that
4: climate change is real? The problem is, the Democrats don't control the Senate and and may not after the Georgia election. So what do you do with divided government? It looks harder than it was even back then to get a sweeping climate package out of Congress when you don't control the Senate. And frankly, even if the Democrats did control the Senate, this is hard to get past because you have some moderate Democrats who are from energy states who will want to negotiate very carefully before they vote for a sweeping climate bill. So I think this is pretty delicate. I think it's possible to put a price on carbon, let's say, in a new piece of legislation, whether it's a capping carbon and a dividend scheme like cap and trade or cap and dividend or a carbon tax. I think that's eventually possible, but I think there may need to be smaller steps building up to it. So you get some bipartisan support around, let's say, a smaller policy that's really important that can make a start like a clean energy standard. You know, the states have renewable portfolio standards, meaning a standard to have a certain share of your electricity come from clean, green sources. Republican states support that policy. You've got a lot of wind in Texas, a lot of wind in Iowa, places like that. So you could imagine climate policy getting through Congress with some bipartisan support that begins to take steps toward the more sweeping legislation. But I'm not sure right out of the gate you get a bill that has everything in it. You know, you think
1: about back in the... 2008, 9, 10, you still had Democrats from energy producing areas and you had Republicans from sort of suburban or urbanish areas who were able to sort of bring the points of view of those communities into their caucuses and now that's basically gone there there's no more <laughs> there aren't democrats from the dakotas or nebraska and you don't have republicans in some of these metro suburbs anymore and so it seems to me like it's even harder that the, that this conversation about climate is as based m- as much on where you live and where your economic drivers are coming from than anything else. And so how do you make this a national issue when for people who live in parts of the country where energy production is the name of the
4: game or agriculture is how they make their living? How do you sell that? The climate issue doesn't really track perfectly along party lines. It really depends very much on where members of Congress live and what their energy endowments are in those parts of the country and different regions different states have different endowments they have some have wind and solar some don't etc some depend more on nuclear power and some on clean hydropower. so this doesn't track the normal politics it's also harder to get things done as you pointed out in a hyper partisan era i think that you have to figure out a strategy that will serve different parts of the country differently You don't have to talk about this as climate policy everywhere. In some states, it will be economic policy. When you talk about moving to renewable power, that can be very attractive in red states. But if it's packaged in a way that doesn't sound right to them, if it's packaged as climate change policy, it may be less appealing. So part of this is messaging. Part of this is explaining that a transition to cleaner energy brings with it economic development. You know, there are good jobs associated with the renewable energy industry. You wrote an op
1: ed recently where you noted that now Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation would have an impact on President-elect Biden's ability to enact a climate plan. So can you talk about this? What does the Supreme Court have to do with agencies like the EPA and how they can wield their
4: regulatory power? It's not just Amy Coney Barrett, she's the third of three conservative justices that Trump, of course, appointed to the court. And in some sense, big part of his climate legacy, Trump's climate legacy, will have been to populate the Supreme Court and the rest of the federal judiciary with conservative judges and justices. That's a problem to some extent, because there tends to be skepticism From justices like Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and others toward expansive use of regulatory power. They tend to treat agencies, when agencies try to regulate, with a certain kind of dubious skepticism, saying, well, do you really have legal authority to do that? And there's sort of a judicial philosophy that says agencies shouldn't try to do big new things with old laws on the books. We should really have Congress speak to that again. That's sort of a a shared philosophy among the conservative justices. So that could pose an obstacle to President Biden, when he says to his agencies, look for ways to do big things with the laws that we have on the books and use your regulatory powers aggressively and expansively. The agencies have to be careful that they can link their powers to the laws that give them authority and that they can very clearly do that so they don't run into trouble in the courts.
1: So how has the court, I mean, obviously, Amy Coney Barrett is is the newest here, but during the Trump administration, did the court then push back on some of the Trump uh, administration's regulatory agency directives?
4: Well, President Trump rolled back, you know, somewhere close to 100 different environmental and climate policies, and he ran into trouble in the courts because the lawyers for the agencies did a really sloppy job. So the Trump administration lost scores and scores of lawsuits because they didn't carefully conduct their rollbacks. Now, that doesn't mean that the court is going to be friendly to a Biden administration, because even a careful um, Biden administration will still have some trouble if it tries to sort of lean into its statutory authority. I'll give you an example because it sounds so abstract. When setting standards for carbon for the electric power sector, the Obama team put in place a set of standards that were very forward-leaning. And they counted on substituting natural gas and renewables for coal. And the strategy the team used was an innovative legal strategy that read their authority very broadly that said, we can do this. We can require replacing dirty coal with natural gas and renewables. That reading of their authority, that that their approach could use that strategy, was challenged in the courts. And the concern is that that kind of approach, if it ever reached the Supreme Court, might get rejected. And the court might say, you know, you don't have the power to consider that kind of strategy. You can only set standards for each and every power plant. You can't talk about substituting one form of energy for another. So this all comes down to how you read the Clean Air Act, how you read the laws on the books. And the court right now, the Supreme Court, the conservative court, is not likely to give the agency a lot of room to maneuver. That's the worry. And so it means that the Biden administration has to pretty much you know, color within the lines But I think it can still do lots with its regulatory power. It just has to be careful in doing so. And so most of its regulatory power then is likely,
1: at least to be successful, is just simply reinstituting the rollbacks, however we say this, undoing what the Trump administration did. But going further than that may be the bigger challenge. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yes, I think so. And so just to just to make this concrete, look, they can the Biden administration can put in place standards for the power sector to try to make it get cleaner, to try to move it in a cleaner direction, meaning toward renewables, away from coal. It can put standards in place for the transportation sector, meaning incentivizing higher fuel efficiency, more electric vehicles, et cetera. can put standards in place to control methane from the oil and gas sector. These are all really important policies because they all get at reducing our economy's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, it's not the most efficient and effective way to do it because you can think of a national policy that might be more efficient, right? Like a carbon tax or a national cap on greenhouse gases. But still, this more piecemeal way to do it, sector by sector by sector, is within the control of the Biden administration and they just have to set rule after rule under the EPA's authority. It won't be as far reaching as it could be if we had a new law, but it's still going to make a significant difference. It sends a signal to these industries that they have to start heading in a cleaner direction.
1: Well, can you talk a a little bit about that? And, uh, you know, many folks in the industry are saying, look, a lot of the stuff we've already been doing. I mean, it, it made economic sense, number one. And two, we understand where the consumers are. And so we're going to react to both of those things. What kind of relationship, first of all, do you think that the Biden administration can and will have with industry? And how much do you think that industry itself is making some of these changes without
4: getting the, you know, the the regulation or the push from government? Well, some of the things we need for a clean energy transition are being driven by market dynamics. There's no doubt about it. The fact that we have abundant cheap natural gas means you can move coal out of the energy mix to a greater extent. And that's happening because of the market. But Government policy is actually very important in driving those market trends forward faster and deeper. And that's what we've been missing for the last four years of the Trump administration. The Obama team tried to do that. They said, look, we see these things in the market. Let's put in place policies that help to cement that trend and drive it further and faster. And that's, I think, the combination we're going to see with the Biden folks. I think they're going to say, let's adopt some standards that further what we're seeing in the market. In some cases, we don't have positive market trends, like the transportation sector, right? Oil is very cheap right now. That makes gasoline very cheap right now. That means people can drive big gas-guzzling cars, and they're not really incentivized to buy the more fuel-efficient vehicles. So you need a bit of a help there. You need fuel efficiency standards for the auto industry to say, you know, we're heading toward more efficient cars. You need to design for more efficient cars. Jody Freeman, I really appreciate you taking the
1: time to walk us through all of this. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Jody Freeman is a law professor at Harvard University and former counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House. Climate change has animated a generation of young voters, many of whom spent months making calls and texts to swing states, even though Joe Biden was not their first choice nominee. But many of them swallowed their ambivalence to Biden and their broader frustration with what they see as a lack of urgency by Democratic leadership to address climate change in order to defeat Trump. And now they want to see President-elect Biden follow through on the promises he made on the campaign trail, They're paying close attention to who Biden appoints to his cabinet and to head agencies as a way to gauge how seriously he'll be taking this issue. Waleed Shahid, a spokesman for the Justice Democrats, is worried that Joe Biden will compromise too much with GOP leaders in Congress.
2: You know, Joe Biden said he is going to fight for the soul of America and I think there is really going to be a fight for the soul of the Biden administration going forward in the same way that President Obama was pushed by progressives in his administration on, you know, fighting for dreamers, fighting to stop the Keystone pipeline from being constructed, you know, Occupy Wall Street. There tend to be a renaissance of social movements under Democratic presidents that are not simply about resisting Republicans, but creating the political space for Democrats to act boldly. And so on climate in particular, you know, as progressive voters tend to be younger voters and as younger voters have said in this past election that climate, the climate crisis is their number one issue. I think voters are looking for Joe Biden to deliver on the mandate that he's received from the millions of voters that chose him over Donald Trump and him and uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders actually are came to a number of agreements after the primaries through these task forces they created. And one of the main things progressives are looking for is the creation of an office of climate mobilization that directly re- reports to President Biden. And that was something that Joe Biden agreed to in the in the task forces and something that progressives want him to deliver on on day one.
1: You have something that you called the, the climate mandate campaign. And 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 talking about the climate cabinet, which I assume you mean when when looking at the cabinet writ large, the, the sort of expectations that you on the progressive side, but specifically for Justice Democrats have in terms of who should Biden pick or, you know, have around him. Talk to us about the kinds of people he's brought into his inner circle thus far.
2: Yeah, so we launched this project called uh, ClimateMandate.org, where we listed that people that we want to see in the cabinet should, one, have no ties to fossil fuel corporations or corporate lobbyists, um, two, represent the diversity of America, and three, have some sort of track record that they have taken the climate crisis seriously in their careers. And so, you know, one person that we're excited about that is apparently already being vetted is Representative Deb Haaland. Congresswoman Holland is and the member of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives, she would be the first indigenous person to be appointed to potentially Secretary of the Interior. Secretary of the Interior also has a lot of jurisdiction over relationships with tribes and tribal lands. So it would be a big deal if she was appointed and we're optimistic that she will be appointed. We you know, we're also looking for people who are really understanding the connection between climate and the economy. And so someone like Joe Stiglitz, who is one of the chief economists at the Roosevelt Institute, we would like to see him placed on the National Economic Council. Um, Derek Hamilton, who has done a lot of writing about the connection between jobs and racial inequality, we would like to see him on the Council of Economic Advisors. Overall, you know, these are people who represent not the consensus that was around when Joe Biden was senator and even vice president. Um, the Democratic Party has become more progressive, and you know there are a lot of these people who were part of the you know Bill Clinton administration and this third way ideology in the Democratic Party. And we want to make sure that there's representation of you know some of these new voices that have been challenging the inequality that we've we've seen in our country.
1: When you look at the kinds of folks that. Biden has brought on thus far to be his chief of staff and 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 other sort of in his immediate inner circle in the White House. A lot of them do come from the Clinton era have been with him for pretty much not if if not his entire career a, a good chunk of his career in politics. There was a lot of consternation um, specifically by the sunrise movement, by the appointment of Cedric Richmond, the congressman to a high profile position there. So thus far, how would you grade the the personnel choices that, that Biden has made? And what do you think it portends for, you know, the next set of, of picks?
2: I think it's uh, it might be too early to give a letter grade, but I will say that the choice of Ron Klain as chief of staff is significant because the two other men who are considered for that role come from the 1990s Democratic Party tradition of being pretty hostile to progressives. Um, you know, Bruce Reed, who was respons- was one of the architects of the 1994 crime bill, was responsible for the 1996 welfare reform laws that Bill Clinton passed, and was the staff director of the infamous Bowles-Simpson Commission, which tried to work with Republicans under Barack Obama and Joe Biden to cut the deficit and put cuts to social security on the table. And the fact that Ron Klein was chosen is a good sign for progressives because he is someone who has noted in the past few years that the party has moved in a more progressive direction and has not been as ideologically hostile to progressive ideas. Um, you know, that said, the appointment of Steve Verschetti is disappointing. He is, uh, he's been a big pharma lobbyist. He's worked for groups in the industry that oppose allowing the government to manufacture prescription drugs. strongly oppose Medicare for all. Um, Cedric Richmond, Representative Cedric Richmond is um, one of the top recipients in the Democratic Party of money from fossil fuel corporations. He took money from Exxon just this past year. And so that was disappointing, but it just provides more urgency, I think, for Joe Biden to take some of these other positions. And, um, you know, if he's going to represent the big tent of the Democratic Party, 40% of the seats in the House of Representatives that Democrats have belong to members who are in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So there should be some adequate representation of progressives in some of these other positions.
1: So there was talk before the election, uh, of course, that Democrats were going to expand their majorities in the House. And there was a strong potential that they would flip the Senate to Democratic control. There's still a possibility of that. We're waiting for Georgia. But if indeed we're looking at a split Congressional control and and obviously Democrats having a smaller majority in the House. Like, talk to us about Justice Democrats and their expectations on these issues that we know aren't going to make it through Congress um, and where compromise is going to happen or where executive authority is going to be more important. Like, where are the areas to you that you think, okay, it's okay, he needs to compromise with Republicans? versus, you know what, let's just forget about going the legislative route. We're not going to get what we want. Let's see how much we could do through executive or regulatory action.
2: You know, first of all, we we have a political system where Joe Biden can win, can defeat Donald Trump by, you know, 7 million votes. And still, that doesn't translate to majorities um, or wins in the House and the Senate. And that is, you know, a growing problem in the design of our electoral system that um, is not simply about ticket splitting or the failures of the uh, Democrats in the House and Senate, but also just about gerrymandering and how the lines are drawn for some of those uh, elections. So I do think fundamentally that the one of the f- biggest questions in American democracy um, going into twenty twenty one is just how hard will Democrats fight for the American majority that elected them, And how hard will Republicans fight to enshrine minority rule in our house, in the House, through gerrymandering and in um, the Senate, through Mitch McConnell stonewalling any legislation that will could be discussed by Democrats and in the Supreme Court through the conservative majority. And that makes it even more, Important for Joe Biden to use executive authority and executive power to move toward creating jobs in the clean energy sector. I mean, there's a number of things his treasury secretary could do that the Office of Climate Mobilization could do to start creating jobs, retrofitting every fe- federal building in this country. Uh, there are millions of federal buildings in this country that could be could be transitioned to uh, 100% clean energy. That would create many jobs. Um, but it's about, you know, in the Obama era, progressives were often pushing President Obama to, you know, do these kind of piecemeal things like President Obama told Dreamers for years that there was nothing he could do on executive action for Dreamers. And then they found a way to do it, which was the DACA program. So there's, there's, you know, they might even say we can't do this. And then a year later, they'll do it.
1: So one last question for you, which is, um, again, media narrative. Everybody likes to put things into nice little boxes. Um, and one of those is that the progressive movement, Justice Democrats, Sunrise Movement, etc., are going to serve a role similar to the one that, say, the Tea Party filled in 2010 for the Republicans, and that you all are not going to just be pushing for certain policies, but primarying, moderate Democrats, trying to push out certain people, I don't know, in the administration or otherwise going to have a very contentious relationship with the White House. How do you respond to that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think um, throughout American history, social movements have had complicated relationships with presidents, whether that's the abolitionists and Abraham Lincoln or the labor movement and FDR or the civil rights movement and John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. And so I think still today, we're in this moment where, you know, there will be uncomfortable moments between progressives and social movements and and the president. But I, I think about this quote that FDR told civil rights leaders and labor leaders of his time, which was, I agree with you, now make me do it. And I think that is the best of the, the tradition of how social movements and party leadership can sometimes, without even knowing that they're doing it, help each other achieve goals. I do think that one thing I'm one thing progressives are really worried about is if Joe Biden returns to his 1970s, 1980s style of politics, which is to achieve these grand bargains with Republicans where Republicans get something, Democrats get something, and we call it a success. I I think party politics is fundamentally different in 2020 and 2021. You can see across the aisle just how far Republicans are willing to go to threaten the election results, um, the legitimate election results. And I think Mitch McConnell will try to get Joe Biden to swallow as many toxic poison pills that make it more difficult for Democratic constituencies to feel mobilized for the 2022 midterms. And so that could look like a range of things. But that's something that I think a lot of Democrats and a lot of progressives are are worried about if Joe Biden you know, returns to some of the fundamental ways he was shaped as a senator in a time where we didn't have as polarized parties. Willie
1: Shahid is the spokesperson for the Justice Democrats. And we heard from you. You told us how you felt about environmental justice and what you want to see from a Biden White House when it comes to climate change. This is Bill calling from Palo Alto, California. I would like to see the incoming administration Take educating the public seriously
0: about climate change. There is so much disinformation out there and a very powerful industry machine spreading it both in the media
1: and from their own websites.
0: I'm counting on President-elect Biden to address climate policy and the environment. We can be doing so much more as a nation and we've got the creativity and technology to be successful at this. So let's do it. (laughs) My name is Barbara. I'm in San Jose, California.
3: My name is Linda Margrave. I'm from Colorado. And I very much support any action to improve our climate. Um, But this is a global effort. It's not one person over another or one business over another. But I do believe that the Biden administration could easily give incentive programs to those who turn to a more environmentally friendly action. Um, And I believe it's the government's responsibility, really.
0: Hi, this is Susan from Vashon, Washington, and I think the climate crisis is the priority for our world right now. Everything else falls from that. What I'd like the Biden administration to do is rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, uh, rejoin the world in standing up to the climate crisis, support renewable energy, support regenerative agriculture, and Turn our economy into one that is designed to conserve rather than to consume.
1: We always want to hear from you. Give us a call anytime at eight seven seven eight my take It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We'll be right back.
0: NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.
1: Right after the election, I try to talk to as many of the incoming freshman members as I can before they're sworn in. This week, I got a chance to talk with... Marilyn Strickland, Congresswoman-elect, 10th District of Washington State. Strickland is one of the newly elected Democrats I was able to snag some time to talk with while she was here in D.C. for new member orientation. I started out by asking her to describe Washington's 10th District and the people who live there.
0: I describe it as a snapshot of the entire state, and in some cases, the entire country. And I say that because it is diverse in every possible sense of the word. It is urban, it is suburban, it is rural. Right in the middle of the district is Joint Base Lewis-McChord, the largest military installation on the West Coast. And it's a combination of an Army base and an Air Force base, and it has an $8 billion a year annual impact on the area you know we have agriculture we have you know growing cities we have areas that have struggled for a long time we have tribal nations there so it just really is a snapshot of everything you can imagine there are universities there there are community and technical colleges there we have everything from shellfish to timber to manufacturing um, a port, and then even, you know, a lot of strong neighborhood small businesses. And so it really is just diverse in every possible sense of the word.
1: So talk a little bit about your race. I don't know that our listeners know this, but Washington State has a top two primary process where everybody runs on the same ballot in the primary and the top two candidates go on to face each other in November. In this case, that meant that Two Democrats were running against each other. So so talk to us about your race, who you were facing, and and what the issues were. How does it how does that work when two Democrats run
0: against each other? As far as the dynamics of the race go, I think that this is where you really start to see some differences between me and my opponent. And you know, the 10th congressional district, as I often say, is not Seattle. And I don't say that disparagingly, it's, you know, it's it's a different place. And so as I described earlier, it's diverse in every possible sense of the word, a lot of different types of political affiliations. And so as the race progressed, you know, I was more in the center left lane and my opponent was more in the far left lane. And so as we were talking to voters and talking to communities, we really learned, Amy, that they were concerned, you know, about a few key issues, especially given the Pandemic. You know, they were looking for leadership at the national level in a Congress that would support relief packages because people need cash now. They were looking for leadership in economic recovery, and having served as mayor coming out of the last recession, I had built a lot of credibility in that issue. And then because of what's happening right now with you know people having to try to educate their kids at home, education was a big issue. And so I was touting my record in education as a mayor who brought a community together. And then, of course, the things that people still thought about even prior to the pandemic, climate change, the healthcare system, housing the things that we know have been on people's minds for a long time, even before COVID, but COVID really amplified the inequities in our system.
1: You were successful um, running as you you call it center left. You also had the support of the the quote-unquote establishment. You had former governors of the state endorse you. You served as the uh, Seattle uh, Metro Chamber of Commerce head. What do you take away from that and what do you think this means for those two sides of the democratic party looking ahead to putting an agenda together in washington
0: what i've learned just in the short period of time i've been here is that the rift isn't as large and dramatic as people think it is and you know if we're able to focus on shared values if we're able to have a clear, concise message to the American public so that people understand that when Democrats are in control, the economy actually does better. When Democrats are under control, we actually create more jobs. When Democrats are under control, we're able to make big progress on human rights and civil rights and the things that are important to so many of us. And so I don't Think, Amy, that the rift is necessarily as large as it is, although it does exist. But I think the question for us as a party is you know, we need to move forward together in unity. We need to move forward, focus on the values that we have, because those values are shared with the majority of the American public. And how are we able to communicate that so that it is people? And so, you know, what I've learned again in this freshman class is that a few things, you know, my freshman class is relatively small, it's 15 Democrats. But even though we represent different parts of what I call the political ideological spectrum, we all get along well. We are very friendly with each other. And again, we have a set of shared values. And I think that's the way forward for the party is to think about we believe in these core values. The distance between one part of the party is not that great. So how do we come together and really clearly communicate what it is we stand for and connect our values with the American people? Because most people agree with what the Democrats stand for, But sometimes it's a conversation about communication. And and honestly, how was the press portraying it? How was the media reporting the story? Because you know that contrasts get clicks. Speaking of moving forward,
1: your relationship within your own delegation, forget about Mm -hmm. just meeting the rest (laughs) of (laughs) the Democrats. But when you have a member of your own delegation, a Democrat, Congresswoman Jayapal, actually not just support your opponent in Mm -hmm. the general election, but really helped to raise a lot of money there. Um this was a this was a pretty active support f- within the party. This was like an intra-family fight. So
0: h- how is your relationship with Congresswoman Jayapal and and how do you guys move forward? I mean, I think this is really about focusing on the fact that I'm now a member of Congress and this delegation. And a campaign is a campaign and people do what they think they need to do. So even though the political action committees that she was associated with spent a total of, you know, nearly a million dollars, we need to move forward as a country because if we think about the challenges that we face, they're, they're just profound. And so for me, this isn't necessarily about, you know, a relationship I have with one person in my delegation. This is really about the people that I was elected to represent and how I'm going to be able to represent them. You know, that I did have the support of, you know, Derek Hilmer, Susan Delbeni, Rick Larson. And I know members of our delegation because during my time as mayor, I worked a lot with them because, as you know, local government needs strong partnership from the federal government. And so for me, this is really about focusing on the people that I want to represent in the 10th district. And that includes the people who may not have necessarily voted for me because you are there to represent everyone and to do your best to pay attention to their needs and to try and do the best you can at the federal level to help the local communities be successful.
1: One of those issues, certainly that the president talked a lot about in some congressional races, you saw this too, was weaponizing the issue of of climate, whether it's the, the Green New Deal or ban on fracking. Your opponent was a climate activist. That was one of the reasons Progressive gave. Talk to us about what your position is on some of the climate issues, what you want to see going forward and where you think the Democratic Party can go.
0: Yeah, so first of all, you know, we know that climate change is real. It is a scientific fact. We are seeing on the West Coast these wildfires that have just been burning, you know, during the summer, creating smoke and hazardous conditions for people's health and welfare. And so when I think about the the things that we need to do moving forward, we have to consider a few things, you know, in Washington State and primarily on the West Coast, because of where we live, environmentalism is part of our natural ethos. When you come to a place like Congress, you have to understand that people come from different parts of the country and their economies are different, and they're just different ways that people look at everything. And, you know, Amy, what Joe Biden did really well is that he talked about climate change, but he also framed it as a job creation program. And I say this because, you know, there are people who absolutely believe in climate change, but they also are fearful that their livelihoods will be taken away. And so as we talk about transitioning to a more clean energy economy, We can make investments in infrastructure, but we have to do it in a way that is just and doesn't just take away people's livelihoods. And so for me, you know, I look at my history when I was mayor, you know, when the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, I stood with 140 other mayors around the country to reaffirm our commitment. I was the, I was, you know, on the boards of two large transit agencies where we made investments in buses light rail and mass transit. We, you know, in Tacoma actually you know, made a pledge to increase our tree canopy. You know, we did a lot of work on trying to improve solar usage and increasing that. And so my record indicates that I clearly am able to take action to address climate change, but on the national scale, it's, it's a different conversation. So it's really about making the investments that make it easier for us as consumers to make better choices. And that's different choices we have with how we heat and cool our homes, with how we use transportation, and even how businesses consume energy. And so I think that Biden's plan to invest in infrastructure, to create those good jobs, but to help people transition away from jobs that have put food on the table, allowed people to have comfortable retirements. We have to be mindful of how those things affect everyone. The state has changed
1: so much since I first started covering politics. But I remember the battles in the 90s in Washington state. There was the the spotted owl and logging were so much of the conversation there. Um, Are those things still sort of the you know, you're still talking about people's livelihoods and industry. But has that now become really basically an eastern Washington Thing and Western Washington is in its own sort of universe now.
0: No, I mean, I would say that everyone recognizes. I mean, if you look at the wildfires, for example, and, you know, Hillary Flans, who is the commissioner of public lands, and she and I are, are good friends, and she supported my candidacy. And, you know, she has traveled around the entire state of Washington, the fires are happening everywhere. And so people recognize that it's a combination of climate change and weather patterns that create drier weather, really aggressive winds. Well, we also know that there's a forest management issue. And to be honest with you, sometimes it's just human behavior, people doing really dumb things that cause fires. And so I do believe that more people are coming to terms with the fact that climate change is definitely real. But I think the question becomes, you know, how do we address it in a meaningful way? And it is urgent. It is a public health crisis it is, you know, it will affect migration patterns. It affects food security because we know that in Eastern Washington, for example, we have a large, you know, agricultural community there. And when the weather patterns are off or not predictable, it has an impact on the harvest season. And so you can't deny that climate change exists. I think the question for all of this is, how are we going to address it? And also too, Amy, recognizing we can do everything right in Washington state. We can do good things, you know, across the nation, but this is a global phenomenon. And this is why getting back to the Paris Climate Accord and coming up with an international strategy is so crucial for really going to do something about this.
1: Well, Congresswoman-elect Strickland, I really appreciate you taking all the time to talk with me. Looking forward to you coming to the other Washington. Well, nice to talk to you. Marilyn Strickland is the representative-elect for Washington's 10th Congressional District. Next up is my conversation with Congresswoman-elect Ashley Hinson from Iowa's 1st District. She's a former TV anchor from Cedar Rapids and a state representative. She's part of a record-breaking number of Republican women who've been elected to Congress this year. She represents a purple district where she flipped a seat from blue to red. We caught up on Monday while she was participating in virtual freshman orientation and isolating after receiving a positive coronavirus diagnosis. She ran on a message of bipartisanship, and I asked her if there were a few issues she could imagine working with Democrats on.
5: Well, I think there's a lot of common ground on what I call the kitchen table issues. We've all been talking about child care, the cliff effect, some of the challenges surrounding taking leave as a family. I've talked about options for that on on the campaign trail. Uh, I'm willing to come to the table on that too because I realize that's something that our families need. I I think there's a middle ground to be had. So if the bill is reasonable, I'm absolutely willing to support the right piece of legislation. That's what I said by running as a common sense conservative here. I'm gonna vet every bill, absolutely. But um, if it makes sense for the people of the first district, I'll support it. So immigration is another that I think we absolutely need to move forward on. I don't support blanket amnesty, but many Democrats don't either. So I think there are many places in the middle that we can come together and actually move the ball forward, which is what I want to do.
1: You've worked in now on both sides of this thing behind the mic and now somebody else asking you questions. Can you appreciate now more that you now that you've been in politics, the pressure on someone in elected office to stick with party first?
5: Yeah. Well, and I've always told people where I stand and there have been people who've supported me with a check who have called me afterward and said, I don't really like your the way you voted on this. And I'll say, I'm sorry, I voted for my district. And a lot of times they still support me once I explain the why. Um, so context for me is what really matters in in all of this. Um, being able to explain why I did something um what my perspective on it was, and all the listening that I did beforehand, when I am able to talk about that, I think that does make a difference to people, even when they disagree with you. As far as the partisan aspect, um, it is tough. And I I think that, unfortunately, what we've seen is, you know, with some of the people who've been in Washington, they've been there a very long time, those relationships are pre-established. And sometimes the personal feelings get in the way, I think, of getting some things done. And so I, I think, unfortunately, we need uh, a new crop of leaders. And that's what I've stepped up. That's why I stepped up to run for this seat in general, um, because I, I want to build that consensus and get things done. Um, I've already told our leadership, I told them when I met with Leader McCarthy last year, I said, there are gonna be times when I'm probably going to not vote with the caucus. I'll tell you when I'm not going to, but I'll let you know. And he said, I expect, you know, that's okay. I expect you'd have to do that. Just be honest.
1: What do you say to folks who look at the fact the president? has not conceded is continuing to push theories that have been already denied by even Republican leaders in these states as false about, you know, vote counts and fraud. Do you believe that Joe Biden
5: is the president elect? I believe that there are some very close elections. We have one of those here in Iowa that, uh, you know, is within 30 votes. I want to make sure every legal vote is counted. All fraud is investigated. But I do believe also that Joe Biden should be getting security briefings because it is looking like he has um, a majority of the electoral votes at this point. So I am confident that um, he should be getting those briefings because I think that's what I would have expected with Obama and Trump four years ago as well.
1: But do you worry that we're actually undermining integrity? When questioning fraud, that is not there. I mean, are there specific examples of places where there is enough, quote unquote, fraud to overturn any one of these states final margin?
5: Well, I don't know. I'm not in the weeds on all of the lawsuits that have been filed. I want all the lawsuits to play out. That's what I want.
1: I'm talking to you as you are actually quarantining. So you recently got a positive diagnosis coronavirus diagnosis is that
5: right yes i am isolating at home and we pulled our kids out of school until after thanksgiving and i've worn a mask everywhere i've gone publicly with the exception of eating drinking or publicly speaking i've been in isolation and i'm hoping to rejoin my colleagues soon well talk
1: about the issue of the pandemic writ large uh, first of all i'm glad that you're feeling you're feeling better it sounds like it so talk about how the pandemic Do you think it's been handled at the state and at the federal level? And now you are going to be somebody, obviously, you're going to be in the front row here and be making significant decisions about where we go from here.
5: Well, obviously, I hope we get the vaccine out as soon as possible. I think that's really going to be, for lack of a better way of saying it, the shot in the arm our country needs to be able to move forward. And Uh, Number two, we need to also make sure we're getting people the relief they need. Unfortunately, um, as we've seen in traditional DC fashion, they've failed at passing a meaningful um, second relief package here. Um, When I'm out talking with businesses who are about ready to deal with this second wave here um, in Iowa, um, our numbers are very high in terms of the number of coronavirus cases. I'm hearing from them, they don't wanna shut down, but they do wanna make sure that we are doing what we can to reduce um, the numbers. So making sure we have adequate money coming in for testing, so that everybody who needs a test can get one. Small business relief is another one where I think we absolutely need to make sure, because um, because the economy has been hurt by this by this pandemic, and they had a, a number of shutdowns, and 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 that is very very challenging. We've seen local restaurants that are already announcing they're not going to stay in business past you know mid December. That breaks my heart because I think you know, some of these places were doing just fine until this pandemic hit. So um, it's not lost on me how important these decisions are. I think I'm against mask mandates. But I also believe people should be wearing masks in public when they can't socially distance. Can
1: it work if there is no mandate? Because as you pointed out, even though you have been really vigilant in wearing a mask, you were still got sick, which suggests that having everyone wear one might be the answer.
5: Well, but my son was sent home from school. They require masks at school, except for the occasion when they're eating in the lunchroom. He was directly exposed to someone in the lunchroom during that short amount of time they had their mask off. Um, So I got asked where I got coronavirus last week. I have no idea because it is spreading so rampantly. So regardless of people wearing masks. Everyone I was around was wearing a mask too. So businesses are requiring them to come in. While many of our local communities have issued mask mandates, um, they're not technically enforceable according to our Iowa code. Um, but I, I look at the number of businesses that have the sign on their door, mask required for entry. And people are people are doing that in order to go into those businesses. So I think it's happened organically.
1: I want to ask you about one more thing, which is the fact that you are part of a record number of Republican women elected this year. And we haven't gotten the final results yet for the House, but almost every one of the challenger races that have been won where a Republican flipped a Democratic seat was done so by a female candidate. Why do you think that is? And do you think that this is a sign for the Republican Party leadership to recruit even more Republican women going forward and put them in more positions of leadership.
5: Well, I think it it speaks to a couple of things. I think the number of women who ran this cycle, uh, it was a record-breaking number of Republican women who filed to run. But also, when you look at the ones who were able to be successful, they were not only just women, but business leaders, leaders in their communities, uh, veterans, minorities. So we had a very diverse class of candidates this cycle that I think spoke to uh, not only recruitment, but support from Leadership. Um, I had meetings very early on and made clear, you know, to them why I believed I was the right candidate, and they got behind me. Um, I think that's that's important in being successful. And we had a number of groups, for example, that got behind strong Republican women candidates. They didn't get behind every woman, but they got behind candidates they knew were good candidates and could be successful. So View for example, and Winning for Women, EPAC, Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman Stefanik's group. Those not only provided resources, but also connections across the country. So I was already having conversations with other women who are running campaigns and saying, well, what are you doing? And how's that working? And so we were able to talk about that, you know, develop relationships. And now I'm going in with a class of women who I respect and admire, and I'm just excited to work with.
1: So you did, you had sort of an informal networking with many of these women candidates where you were sharing like, okay, what did you guys do about this? Or What happened when you had to, you know, deal with X, Y, and Z issue?
5: Sometimes you just have a bad day and you just need someone to talk to who you know is going through the same thing you are. And so um, many of these women ended up being... um, being friends to to me on the campaign trail, albeit virtually in many cases, since <laughs> many of our events were on Zoom. But right. um, but no, I, I think it's been a, it's been a very unique year to have to run a campaign in general for anyone on the ballot this year. But um, but I think unique in the sense that we did have a, an incredible class of candidates come in and be successful this year.
1: Well, Congresswoman Elect, congratulations! I hope that everything continues to go well with your <laughs> recovery. And we'll see you in Washington soon. Thank you. I'm looking forward to getting to work. Ashley Hinson is the congresswoman-elect for Iowa's 1st Congressional District. And one more thing for me. Did you all watch my cousin Vinny? He says to her, how many fingers do I, how many
4: fingers do I got up?
1: It's easy to laugh off Rudy Giuliani's attempts to question the legitimacy of the 2020 election. There was the Four Seasons landscape debacle and Thursday's press conference where the former New York City mayor lobbed numerous baseless conspiracy theories about the election, all while black dye ran down the side of his face. But that the president of the United States is not only supporting these attacks on the election, but actively stirring them isn't funny. Not at all. Firing Chris Krebs, the Director of Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency who rejected Trump's claims of voter fraud, inviting GOP members of Michigan to the White House in an apparent attempt to delay or deny certification of Michigan's results, continuing to use his bully pulpit to discredit election officials. This is the kind of stuff that in any other country we'd describe as authoritarian and dangerous. Thankfully, there are enough guardrails built into the system to prevent a coup. But it is dispiriting to see so few GOP officials stand up and tell the president to stop and to see the official RNC account tweet out the false claim that, quote, President Trump won by a landslide. As states continue to certify their election results, the president's path to disrupting the process will hit a dead end. Joe Biden will be declared the winner of the Electoral College, and on January 20th, he will be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States whether Trump concedes or acknowledges it. But the damage has been done. And once again, it is up to us, those of us who believe that this democracy is resilient, to bring it back to life. That means calling out anyone, even those who are on our own team, when they try to undermine it. That means admitting that winning at all costs isn't worth it. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Yacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Howitt is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.